You are tuned to the online radio voice of the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Here at the foot of Majestic Pikes Peak, we are here at Tom's World Language Cafe. It is now just about 10 after 9, and we are ready to listen to some of the best music in town and the best thoughts in town. So we can start with the music. Good morning, Tom Alsop. How are you this morning? Is your corazón cantando or are you just kind of talking to us today? Today we have with us a couple of exceptional guests that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. But first I would like to put a plug in here a little bit for the big language conference taking place in Indianapolis um, starting tomorrow through Saturday, the Central States uh, Conference on the Teaching of Foreign Languages uh, to be held at the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Indianapolis. Um, if anybody happens to listen and, and you're not going, try to go. It's a great, great conference. And then um, in April 7th, there is a, another big language conference in uh, Columbus, Ohio. The Ohio Foreign Language Association uh, conference is in April. So um, today, back to our guest, it's a real privilege to introduce to you uh, two outstanding uh, professors, uh, Dan of Spanish and Education and Sarah of, of Spanish at Franklin College in Indianapolis. It really is not in Indianapolis. It's in Franklin, Indiana, which is about a half hour south of Indianapolis. And uh, Dan and Sarah Alsop, uh, it's Dan Alsop, Sarah Colburn Alsop, in fact, are going to tell you a little bit about um, what they do and uh, how they met, et cetera. And then I'll throw in a few thoughts because uh, um, I'm sure we're going to have a million thoughts with these two wonderful people. Dan was named the Indiana Spanish uh, Professor, College uh, Professor of the Year this past year, and Sarah won the award two years ago. So we're blessed with uh, two tremendous teachers here who are going to really uh, uh, give us some great insights into what teaching is all about. Um, so I'll talk first to Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Are you there? Um, yeah. Thank Hola, you. buenos dias. Are you, 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 are you awake and everything, right? <laughs> I'm glad we're awake. The instrumentation keeps us awake, Sarah, I must say. <laughs> so, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at uh, Franklin College? Sure. Um, I actually teach all levels of Spanish here at Franklin College um, from the beginning all the way up through the advanced level, cultural culture and literature classes, and um, we've taken several student trips um, where we've gone for three weeks um, immersion to Guadalajara, Mexico, and um, we do a lot of fun things on campus, a lot of extracurricular things. Uh, Dan, um, can, can you tell everybody how you and Sarah met, where you met at, because it's kind of curious that Dan and Sarah, Dan happened to be 
my son and Sarah is my sister-in-law and we're kind of a family of Spanish teachers. My wife is also a Spanish teacher, as I am. And uh, Dan and Sarah met uh, in, in the same building on the campus of Indiana University, uh, Valentine Hall, where uh, my wife and I met a long time ago in medieval Spanish literature class. So tell us a little bit about how you met each other. Mm, well, so obviously we now know that the building and it was uh, in Bloomington, Indiana University, but basically we were both doing graduate work there and I was in the middle of a master's program in Spanish and uh, teaching and then Sarah was just starting her PhD in Peninsular uh, Literature at the time and so we met and the rest is history. <laughs> so Dan, Dan has a, a PhD in uh, foreign language education, and Sarah has a PhD in Spanish literature. So it's uh, quite a teaching combination. Um, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, what kind of college is Franklin College? Yeah, uh, Franklin College is a liberal arts school. Um, we have several big programs, um, education being one of our foremost, journalism, uh, medicine, and we also love to talk about the humanities. Um, you know, we the students all take a, a group of core courses, making it a liberal arts-focused um, school. Um, and um, we've got about a little over a thousand students enrolled here, and um, we keep the classes pretty small so that they can um, have that one-on-one -on -one time teacher uh, time with the teacher. And um, it's great for communication classes and learning. Um, what about, uh, I know you do a lot of service learning uh, projects there, Dan. What, what, what happens in service learning at Franklin College? Well, we've, it's sort of, it's integrated in a lot of different fashions. Um, we could give an example from the Spanish curriculum. Um, there's an entire course um, dedicated to learning through service uh, to the local Hispanic community. So the students... Um, seek out with some direction from the professor um, organizations in the community. These can be medical clinics or uh, they can be church oriented. They can be in the, the local schools that have high Hispanic populations. But they, they seek out opportunities and they set up almost like, you might call it like an apprenticeship where they go out on a regular schedule throughout the semester. Um, and they work with a person on site in a voluntary capacity to help um, that, a portion of that Hispanic community um, then in the class, they're re reflecting on that, doing some reflective writing, and doing some readings on the on themes that involve altruism and so on and so forth. We have other ways that students do that. Um, we, we have trips that are service trips. We have a lot of students involved in Habitat for Humanity. Um, I currently have an education course that is about diversity in, in the classroom and, and working with uh, multicultural and second language students. Uh, where we're participating, we're collaborating with a large um, high school in the local area where students go and work directly with the, the ESL uh, teacher there. They help her accommodate, adapt materials. In some cases, they work one-on-one -on -one with the, the ELLs, the English language learners. So it takes a lot of different forms, but it's something that Franklin um, really believes in and, and encourages. Sarah, what about the, the Spanish house? I know you have a, a Spanish house on campus. What role does that play in, in, in the study of Spanish, for example? 
Well, I guess the students who are really interested and passionate about language and the Hispanic culture, an opportunity to kind of live that in an immersed environment. Uh, they, they have um, evening meals where it's all in Spanish. They have specific locations in the house where they must only speak Spanish. And we also do some neat things where we incorporate all of campus, anybody who speaks Spanish at any level. Uh, monthly, we, we host um, La Orda Social, the social hour, and invite um, Hispanic guests, some who are residents on campus and some from the outside who come in. It's informal. We just chat and, um, you know, in Spanish and learn about uh, different places and different experiences that people have had. And um, it's been really fun. This is the most exciting news I've heard all day, as a matter of fact, all week, to have a Spanish house on campus. Now, Professor Sarah, if I may, with Tom's permission, ask you a question. It it would be, how has this been financed? Does it come through contributions from the university? Has there been a grant provided by a family interested or something of that sort? or, Or does it come from student funds? Well, that's a good question. Our strategic plan uh, for the college was um, to create more themed housing. We are the first inaugural group. Um, this is our, we're going into our first year with it, um, second semester. But the goal is to have several houses on campus. I know of um, a, a multicultural house. Um, they're proposing, they're proposing a academic excellence house. So what the campus has done with um, grant money as well as um, very generous donors is they have bought properties around the campus, including the beautiful house where, um, which we call La Casa, where um, our residents live um, in the Spanish State House. And these houses are actual homes that have been located on campus or were they built exclusively for campus use? They were either just on the perimeter of the campus. Uh, and, we have um, the same thing, yeah. We have the same kind of housing, but we certainly don't have language houses, which gives me another uh, windmill to to uh, view from our beautiful Pikes Peak over here. That's a marvelous thing. And the other question, too, for Professor Dan is, do you do... Um, a variety of courses beginning with first year all the way up to the advanced classes as does Professor Sarah or do you remain in a certain area? Is there a hierarchy, hierarchy I should say, of who teaches what courses or does everybody teach all courses in your schools? We, yes, yeah. Um, we attempt to cycle around and keep that as evenly distributed as possible. I mean we just feel like it's um, it's good to, it, for a variety of reasons. It's good to for students at a variety of different levels to experience all the different teaching styles. We currently have uh, three people uh, that contribute in some full-time fashion, and myself, and I'm shared with the education department, so I'm sort of like a half-time um, on each side. So we, we try to move that around both for the benefit of the students and for the, I think, for the benefit of us as instructors to sort of keep us from getting in a rut and I think it also encourages us as a department to sort of communicate with each other more openly about what we're trying to accomplish at each level, and share ideas of things that work really well, and so on and so forth. So our general pattern is to try to rotate that around on a pretty cyclical basis so that people teach up and down the spectrum of, of the courses. So that it does not become a tribal enterprise 
or something which is based on uh, control issues that that I think would have something to do with why people wish to uh, just remain teaching one thing. Does that mean then, Professor Dan, that tenured professors do first-year courses? Yes, as a matter of fact, that that would be true. Mm -hmm. In some places in the world, I don't think that happens. Would you say that you are unique in, in, in this kind of plan? Well, certainly, you know, I don't know the the specifics and the proportions and how that relates to different types of schools, but I mean, I do think that there is a, you know, a, a fairly large trend um, towards the issue of... Um, Egalitarian academics. That's a wonderful way to go, because a lot yeah, of I mean people become set exactly and, and uh, cemented in their courses and do not wish to teach other ones. Uh, Professor Sara, can, yes. can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming initiation for the Spanish honorary that you have on campus? Sure. We have a chapter. It's called IOTA IOTA, um, and it's part of Alpha Mu Gamma, which is a large um, national um, foreign language honor society. And I believe it's out of um, Los Angeles, California, is where it was founded. And we are um, this um, <laughs> coming week going to be initiating um, 11 students. Um, they have to meet specific requirements. I mean, they're pretty, you know. It's stringent. Stringent. We request quite a few different things, but they, 11 of them have met those requirements. And then we will also um, induct two honorary uh, members. These are typically faculty or staff that have really shown great support for our languages and um, they themselves um, may speak another language or just support the idea of culture and language. Uh, Sara, what, um, this is a, a rather global question, what, um, what makes a great um, world language department? I know you at, uh, at, at Franklin College, you and Dan really work hard with the, the other as well with all the wonderful uh, language department uh, professors there and you have a great uh, language department and I know Dan does a lot of work as well in the education department which is also incredibly good so what makes a good world language department because I obviously from what you said you cover the, the tremendous uh, breadth of, of uh, activities classroom teaching out, outside activities uh, immersion programs, service learning. Um, what 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 really makes a great program, in your opinion? And then I'll ask Dan. You can answer the question too. That'd be great. Sure. I think first and foremost, you have to have a group of um, professors that are really committed um, to the students, that are passionate about what we're doing, um, that really share like-minded goals. In our case, it's all about getting the students immersed thinking about culture, living it as much as that is possible, um, working as a team. I think open communication and collaboration, going back to what Marge was saying in terms of egalitarian, the more egalitarian, the, the more successful it's going to be. Um, I could add to that, I mean, certainly, you know, you need passionate individuals to form a passionate team. I think another thing that, that would be important, and certainly, it's, there are challenges depending on the size of your department and faculty. Um, but I do think to the extent that you can, to have good communication and articulation about what the goals of the program are overall, 
and then how those, uh, what are the sub-goals and the sub-objectives that you need at each level of the, of the language sequence to be able to make that big umbrella goal happen by the time students have, you know, are ready to graduate or have taken a certain number of courses. You know, what are the differences between um, levels? How do you make each level somewhat and then, you know, particularly when you get to the advanced level, but how do you differentiate the courses? How do you differentiate the content so students don't feel like it's constantly a treadmill of, you know, well, this seems a lot like the last class I took. So there's, there's going to be overlap, but you also have to try to diversify to the extent that it seems that there's something new going on with the student for each particular course to the extent that it's possible. So, uh, Sara, and then again, Dan, how do you get the students uh, talking the language in class and keep them talking and, and, and get them to be productive speakers of the language? I think it starts from day one. As far as participation in my class, for some people this might seem high, but it's 20% of their grade. And it's a weekly, you know, I, I put a grade up there every week and I tell them exactly what it entails to get a 9 or a 10, which is the highest. And 9 or 10 means you are making every effort, no matter what the level, to do as much as possible in Spanish. So for example, today, um, our topic for this past chapter, and I'm teaching the beginning level, um, second semester currently, um, our topic for today were markets, open air markets in Latin America. <laughs> and um, we will be actually mimicking that. They all have to bring in a product that they're going to sell. And, um, you know, they have to do the bargaining just like you would in, a, in an open-air market if you were in Spain or Latin America. And um, all of this is in Spanish. And, you know, they realize when you do these things that mimic real life, even though it's not completely, you know, realistic, it's, it's an immersion of sorts. That's wonderful. I know that a lot of us have done that. And uh, when I've done it as well, I've added authentic uh, money from the places that we were studying and, uh, you know, copying off the bills from Mexico or wherever it happens to be gives the people uh, an additional graphic organizer, if you will, to see how much money they're actually spending. And that's really a very interesting situation as well. And I've bought some wonderful things from the students. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I'm sure that uh, when I bring my things in, they, they wonder what the heck I'm bringing. But, boy, I have a whole box load of things that I've bought from these, these Mercados al Aire Libre, and they're really fun. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have a Mercado today. Awesome. Yes. Dan, what do you think about the speaking? What's some neat activities or, uh, that you use a lot? Well, I, I would come at it from this direction because Marge and Sarah have given, you know, a great practical example of a type of thing you can do to encourage, um, you know, verbal communication and negotiation, and, you know, of meaning and all this stuff. And so things like that are wonderful. But I and I think that they would agree with this that in addition to doing activities like that on a fairly regular basis, you also want to develop an atmosphere in your class where A, you invite students, but set an expectation, but in a, in a not too threatening manner that, you know, we want to make the target language sort of the, the predominant um, mode of communication in the classroom. And in doing that, and I think, I'm sure Marge and I know Sarah 
uh, would agree with this, that in doing the type of Medi Carlo activity that they're talking about or asking, you know, students to, having students, uh, having a grade that has a 20% participation into their final total grade, I mean, you, when you describe what they're going, what you're expecting them to do when they're using the language in these sort of impromptu or semi-improvisational formats, you've got to explain to them that you're not just being graded on the fact that you pronounce everything exactly right or, you know, everything comes out exactly accurate in terms of the structure of the language, right? So, you you know, you ha there has to be a realistic explanation of them and discussion with them of when you're talking in a fairly improvisational setting, what do we want? It doesn't have to be perfect. We just want you to try to communicate the best you can. So I think you have to get that atmosphere. You can also use group work and the other types of non-threatening things throughout the course of your, your class to try to set up this environment where you're inviting them to communicate, you're encouraging them to communicate, and you're expecting them to do that, but it has to be in a non-threatening and, and realistic way. Um, otherwise, you know, they're going to be scared off. And the practicality of it all, and, and, and a lot of really key things, right, boils down to practicality. Um, and, and that is the usefulness of, of the activity uh, and having a, a variety of activities uh, in a given class that allows students to speak uh, the language. Uh, sometimes the textbooks get in a field uh, far, far away from sometimes of allowing the students to be on task for speaking uh, in the classroom enough. And uh, I think what you guys are saying is exactly that that you have your situations, you have your situations or uh, your activities, uh, but it's planned and it's very structured so that the students are indeed uh, given the opportunity to speak. Um, th th there's been some research done that's, that does show that in many classes, the teacher uh, talks much, much, much more than the students uh, in the language, and uh, which is not necessarily a very good uh, item to be using in the classroom. Uh, it's the kids who need to talk, right? And uh, so I think we always have to pinch ourselves and, and say, boy, we got to get these students talking and keep them on task. Um, there's Mark. one thing, Sean, that that indicates uh, there's problem and there's trouble in River City, as they said in the Music Man. We have a polarization, though, and I think all the professors who are in this conversation today can speak to it. There's a polarization between the expectations of the lower division classrooms in the college environment and the upper division expectations where we begin by thinking in terms of conversational, collaborational speech, and then we expect students to jump into a literary environment where they just don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the tools. What happens when the, we're, exp should we be expecting them to jump, jump, or how can we make that transition from the I, me, my scenario to the we scenario in literature and language development? How can Sarah, we make... Wanna, yeah, Sarah, do you want to uh, answer that one? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's about, well, for starters, having as much as possible communicative driven uh, from the get-go. And I know, you know, that's a struggle. Um, it's something I've been working on with my um, second semester first years, you know, even from the 100 level to, well, in our case, the beginning semester to this semester, my expectations are different and getting them to adjust to that. And at each level, increasing it incrementally so that they are ready um, to take on the next level and in between 
I think it's good to encourage them to travel, to, um, you know, to get out and do service learning where they're actually communicating with the Hispanic cultures that surround us um, and those sorts of things so that when they do get to the literature culture level, they feel confident enough uh, that they can handle it. Yeah, I would just add here, if I could, that one of the things that, and Marge, I think what you, one of the things, what you're trying to underline here, and I think this is very important, is, you know, the basic language sequence is very much about um, trying to develop communicational skills that are all about the here and the now. So, right. you know, if you think about our English language learners, even though the, the second language environment and the foreign language environment are a very different environment in which to learn it, the process is still this idea of first and second year Spanish courses at the university level are more focused, more focused on the basic intercommunication, interpersonal Correct. communication skills. And then when we get up to the more intellectual or whatever you want to call it, uh, level of, of literary analysis and cultural criticism, we're talking about a very high cognitive academic language. Exactly so it's, right. It's, it's a different same, speak. Exactly. And so I think what we've got to do is, and, th and there's, there's no easy answer to this, but I think that what you have to do is if you're teaching an upper division course that is in fact about, you know, some form of cultural or criticism or literary analysis is you've got to understand that you're going to have to build that sort of teaching that those academic language skills in writing or how to um, how to talk about something and how to express your opinion about something you're going to have to incorporate some of those as language pieces within your bigger um, holistic content class I think I think that you have to do that you have to teach students when they get to that level of okay uh, let's uh, you know write a paragraph and here's five expressions you can use that are going to be really good for you to talk about um, analyzing something about the plot or the tone or whatever. So give brilliant. them a few vocabulary words and let them practice that a little well, bit before you ask them to do it. There, one of the things we always have to remember about literature is that, that literature is life. And uh, these people, when they wrote these books, uh, probably didn't have it totally in mind that they were going to be totally analyzed forever, some of them. <laughs> and people were going to do all these tremendously complicated research things on this book that, that is, a, is, is an example of life, uh, whatever the book, uh, whatever the short story. So why can't we make that real? Why can't we bring life to this? Why can't we do a theater? We could do a theater presentation of the short story where the, the students role play, they act it out. One of them can be the author. Uh, they, they make a video, they make a movie of the short story or the novel. Um, you could do imagination stations around the classroom, have seven different stations set up about a short story or a novel, uh, the, the different scenes in the novel where the students have to role play and be a character in the novel. They have to, but, but all of those things brings life to what the kids are, are doing. And that's why I think when they get in literature classes that are totally uh, sometimes an overkill of, of, of analysis that, uh, that that it makes a big difference that they're part of this learning process, the students, um, and then they're going to use their language, uh, and not that it's a total lecture type situation. Um, yeah, and, and what you're pointing out there is is a di in a different way, but not unlike what I think the same thing I was I was driving at is that you know you've got you have to allow. You, you can do the literary criticism and you can read the works and you, you can ask students to do a research paper, but you have to give them opportunities to continue de to develop their language fluency skills. I mean, to think that they can come out of a second year course and be ready to go with 
you know, the most advanced level of, we're talking about undergraduate education here. Correct. I am. You know, they're, they're, they're still developing those language skills. So they, they need those opportunities, both spoken language, written language. You need to find a way to integrate to some reasonable level to bring them along. Those opportunities where they can continue yeah. to develop their language skills and, and approach that ability to deal with that more academic cognitive language and be able to express it. Right, to bring them along little by little. Uh, the, the other, qu this is a quick question. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you, Dan and Sarah, what do you think about the use of textbooks in the world language classroom, high school level, college level? And are the textbooks overused, or do the teachers have room to be creative in their teaching, or the syllabus that's used, does that take away from that, or how do you deal with that problem if you're a teacher to be able to be creative teaching and let the students participate in, in the learners and, and, and to be involved in this process where you're not just covering pages every day? I think it's really, I'm ambivalent about the textbook to be honest with you. I think it's good for them to have a base, something that they can go back to to look at the grammar point, to you know, study the vocabulary, to see it in context, you know, in visual. But in the classroom, I would say I use it about, on an average, about a quarter of a day. I don't like to do everyday exercises out of the book. I like to have them doing real life theater, like you were saying, um, acting out like they're in market, and just speaking to one another, you know, rather than always being in the book. Occasionally, I'll do exercises in the book, but I, I try to limit it. I think um, the students actually want to have a textbook, but I think the reality is it's more of a, a, a base, a foundation from which you can work, and um, I, I think creativity is what, what drives um, the passion and gets people excited about the language, not the textbook itself. I would, ag I would agree with that. And Dan, you know, you're talking about lots of methodology that involves scaffolding, where <coughs> we stay with the students and, and um, mentor them, shepherd them through certain procedures, and then step back little by little and watch them do those procedures themselves. I think that scaffolding takes place both in the conversational arena as well as the literary analysis arena. But the most important thing that I'm finding coming from this uh, conversation today is that people really need to see dynamic teaching and action. You talked, all of you talked about having passion, but you people have that extra push, which is passion plus focus. So if one were to take a three-day workshop with the ALSOP group, that would include Tom, Dan, Sarah, and Jill, and create a weekend immersion program in Indiana. I would be there with my dollars. I would be there waiting to see what kinds of wonderful things you could create to take me from the collaborative conversational realm all the way up to the more cognitively developed areas of thinking about the great thoughts that have been written in the Spanish language. So when are you going to do your workshop? Well, we'll have to talk about that. Okay. That would be, that would be dynamite. That would be dynamite. Because people need to see 
see good teaching in action. And oftentimes my thought is we don't really see what's, what other folks are doing because either we don't have time or it takes people writing lesson plans to be out of the classroom. And there are several excuses that people can make for not seeing what else is happening. But what you're doing, I would love to be there and watch. I would, I would be thrilled. And I'd bring a few of my little things with me. We could all have fun. Uh, this is um, a little political question for both of you. In uh, March, you can chime in as well. Uh, we know that there's uh, grave issues at, at stake in Wisconsin uh, and Indiana as well uh, with the legislature that uh, they're, they're contemplating passing uh, some of these education uh, uh, bills that are going to impact education. Do you think that this, what, what could happen in Wisconsin and Indiana could have an effect on the world language study in, in either of those states? I would say without a doubt. I mean, I think when you're talking about um, cutting teachers, cutting creative programming, and, uh, you know, arts and music and all that that entails are typically the first to go. So they're looking at some really major issues just across education in general. But uh, knowing how um, the uh, nation views um, hierarchically um, language and arts in, in all different forms, um, I would say that, yeah, that's where it's a very major preoccupation. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Dan. I would say that there's certainly potential. I mean, and even prior to this point, I mean, we've seen a couple uh, pretty large schools in our area of our college uh, massively overhaul their their language programs in response to you know. Um, funding cuts. They don't have enough money and they have to reorganize and you know we've got one particular school here that uh, has gone to a completely computerized approach to world languages so the students are all doing Rosetta Stone or something like this in a variety of different languages and there's a teacher that oversees this. We have something like that languages. here too, yeah. So, and you know it, that's great if you want to know some vocabulary but it's no longer a program like what we're used to, the really strong programs that you know, students come from, and let's say, the high schools and, and prior where they, you know, they've gone through a traditional program with a, a passionate teacher and, you know, work their way up and they come and they're, they're outstanding students and they're not going to have the same language abilities. I mean, that, that's a really unfortunate development as far as I'm concerned. So what's the solution or what's one of the solutions? Well, when you're looking at budget cuts, don't go to education. That would be my <laughs> That's right. We could be pinching pennies, and it just doesn't seem right. My well, mother, my mother had some. It's not right for the children, right? And it's uh, uh, the future of the country, and it's not a place that we need to be cutting budgets and 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 not paying attention to the future of the nation in education. So we're not going to improve any test scores by putting 40 students in a class and. Uh, and uh, lowering standards for people who end up getting an education, including some teachers maybe, uh, who uh, come into education uh, may maybe in a quick manner who don't have the background necessary to be good teachers. So a lot of things are going on and that need to be investigated further uh, before some of them probably happen. One, um, of, one of the things, Tom, though, that a lot of us think, and, and I, I know we, uh, we walk our talk, 
all of us, all four, four or five of us, walk our talk. But one of the things that a lot of people say is, somebody's got to really do something about that. I mean, this can't go on. Well, number one, we have to do something about it. We have to step up to the plate. And if legislators in the Congress of your state and my state are doing things that are absolutely putting people in jeopardy, they're creating worker bees and forgetting about thinker bees, we really have to stand up and be counted. The way people are standing up and being counted in Wisconsin, there are teachers there, there are people from every area of public service there saying, no, you cannot take away the rights that we have worked really hard for. But then think in terms of standing up not only as a person in the academic area, but a person in the political forum and have our voices heard there as well. I've done it. I've been in contact with our governor on several occasions. I've spoken with several governors on several occasions and made my uh, opinions clear to them, and so have other of my colleagues, and I'm sure that you have as well because we are the people who know the answers to the questions about how students learn best, what they need to learn best, and what kinds of financial progress should be made in these areas. So we're the ones that should step up. What do you well, think? It, it's, it's a good point in, in uh, how to get involved in the political process, which is uh, not terribly easy sometimes. And, uh, Through your state organization, that's one way. But many people are not aware of how they can get involved. And, uh, it's um, with technology sometimes has its easy points and uh, to get involved sometimes it doesn't so it, it kind of works both ways which I wanted to ask you Sarah and Dan a quick question on the um, technology in the classroom uh, where is the technology right now what do what do you both think about that well I'll take a stab at it quickly and then I've got to run because I've got a class, class. That I've <laughs> All right. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. For you. Show. This has um, been a I great conversation. Technology goes. Um, I think it has a place. I think you got to be careful, though. Getting up in front of the class with a PowerPoint and a very static presentation does not make you a 21st century creative teacher. Uh, I think, you know, technology, when you have students doing fun things like videotaping their own commercials, um, you're using it um, to show them real clips of, um, you know, like I said, I keep going back to it, it's what I'm focused on right now, but the markets in Latin America, when you have those sorts of things, it can be very beneficial. But I think, again, people just need to be careful about what it means to be creative and when you're using technology. Okay, thank you very much, Sarah. Have a good class, okay? Thanks for being on. Take care. Tell the Bye -bye. students they're a lucky bunch. Uh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, and Dan, what did you think on that technology point? Well, you know, I would obviously I agree with that, and I think, you know, we might talk about it in terms of going back to our discussion of, of what's the role of a textbook, you know. The textbook and all the different types of technology we can imagine today and utilize, I mean, they're all different tools that are part of the arsenal of a committed and creative educator. Um, but they need to be used in a responsible way, in a balanced way, in a way that allows students variety, and in a way that doesn't turn students into passive participants in the learning process. Um, technology that can get them, like some of the things that Sarah mentioned, or you know, whatever digital uh, handheld voice recorders, so your students can go out and maybe do an interview with a, a Spanish speaker in the community, or. The things where they're, they're being active, they're being agents in the learning process. So 
we just don't want to have that situation where we're just relying on technology and everybody's just kind of zoned out um, because it's a, a one-dimensional deal. It's a, it's a tool um, that can be used effectively if the students are active and, you know, it's not the one thing that you do every day. So. Okay. Um, I really appreciate, Dan, your help today, and thank you so much for being on the show. And um, we, we certainly appreciate it, and we hope you'll be back to be on another show down the road, um, you and Sarah. So, uh, again, thank you so much. And, uh, Marge, do you have anything you would like to add? I would just like to thank all of the ALSOPs for making this marvelous program possible because Tom's language, World Language Cafe is an innovation that is going to be broadcast not only through our Skyping but also through Tom's website, which is what, Tom? Uh, it's masterclassworkshops.com. And it's also going to be broadcast on UCCS Radio. So please tell your friends and please know that this is what education is all about. What we're trying to do is connect with people, not only one-on-one, -on -one, but thousands to thousands. We have a lot to accomplish, and you people are really innovators. Passion, focus, brilliance, and uh, humor, I think, are all things that really make a difference. So I'd like to thank you very much for being here. Also, I'd like to thank, and I think we're all thanking, the College of Education, College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, College of Nursing and Health Sciences, the College of Business, and the College of Engineering and Applied Science here at UCCS for allowing us to be on the air. Have a wonderful day, uh, gentlemen. Mark. I'm looking yes. forward to seeing, seeing you. I can see you, but I'm looking forward to you seeing me once we get our photographs on track. So we'll talk to you soon. Okay, the next program will be Saturday, we hope. Uh, we're going to yes. try to bring it live to you from the Central States Conference at um, 11 o'clock Saturday morning, uh, Eastern Time, 9 o'clock Mountain Time uh, from Indianapolis, and have some uh, guests for you live from the Central States Conference. And um, we're going to close with a quote from Cervantes, uh, La Pluma es la Lengua del Alma. Uh, the pen is the... There you the go, Tom. Very good. And as it sounds so. And leaving you with a, a couple of thoughts, and that is learn another language, broaden your world, be another person. You know, veremos muy, muy pronto, y hasta pronto, au revoir. And uh, we we'll hope to see, see you uh, Saturday, where you're going to listen on Saturday um, at, uh, from Indianapolis, from the Central States Conference. Thanks so much. Have a great week, Mars. Thank you. Thank, Thank you me. so much, Tom. Yes, you Chévere. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Dan. Abrazo. You are listening to radio.uccs.edu.
sembraste en cada beso que te di y con el tiempo te pensé.